Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends Sean Walker of Simple Co. Good evening. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. How are you, man? I'm doing well. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. And please stick around towards the end of the show. We're going to be briefly talking about what each of us have going on in our own shops. So let's get right into it. Guy, you've got the first question. All right. This question comes from Fred Clark. It says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Well, thank you, Fred. My question is this. Is it of absolute importance to have a dead flat assembly table to glue up your work square and keep it square? I asked because I built a dresser and glued it up, checked it for square and moved it to my floor, which is steel plates. Rechecked it for square and it was fine. Came back the next morning, took it out of the clamps, and it was out of square. I had to disassemble and re-glue it, and it was very frustrating. So now I'm looking to build an assembly table that is flat and level, so I want to know how flat does it need to be. Thanks, and keep up the good work, Fred. We've discussed this a few times, mm-hmm. but um, I think it's always good to talk about this. Not everybody listens to every episode we have. You should. Yeah. <laughs> Speak for yourself, guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a flat assembly table and it's not dead flat. It's mm-hmm. within 10 thousandths of an inch. And the way I checked that was um, I put a, a, a known straight edge across, which is a Veritas uh, aluminum bar. Mm-hmm. I think it's like 54 inches or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I put it across it and I can get in some spots, I can get a playing card underneath it. But for the most part, it's so it's within 10 thousandths of an inch. To me, that's flat enough. Um, the main reason my, I wanted a, a really flat assembly table was because of making doors. Mm. Um I make a lot of inset doors and with inset doors, if they're not flat to the front of the cabinet, they look like hell and you got to remake them. There's just yeah. no way around it. So that's the main reason I have a dead flat assembly table is simply because of doors. Um, but for like panel glue ups and stuff like that, mm-hmm. To me, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's got to be fairly flat. But the really thing, really the thing you're looking for with flat is where things don't, where it doesn't, whatever you're gluing it up on doesn't add twist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is the big thing. So, yeah. what what do you think about that, Hui? I mean my my assembly table is at a flat. I don't know, maybe maybe even a little bit more than that. Maybe a sixteenth of an inch or so. Um, but I've never had that kind of an issue with assembling something and then taking it out of the clamps and then it's no longer square. So uh, in most situations, uh, wherever you're putting your piece of furniture, you're going to have to level it a little bit anyway, you know, with the legs, uh, possibly being, um, 
or the floor that you put it on not possibly being level. So you really well, kind of. But uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm going to. Level is irrelevant. Yeah. Flat is what's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm, that's. Yeah. You're right. You're right. So flat. So uh, yeah, I can only see that the reason why that would become an issue is like you said, uh, Guy, if you're making doors, and particularly if it's going to be an inset door, then that's going to be for panel glue ups. It's I've never had an issue with that. I'm trying to think what could be causing his issue. Well, well I mean, it's go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Sean. I, I was going to say one thing that I that I've run into that Fred ran into. Um, I have assembled items that are larger than my assembly table, and I've had to put them on the floor. Yes, and I'm wondering if what Fred is running into is, is what I ran into is it's clamped it together. It was square, but it was just so big. When you take clamps off, it shifts until you put the back panel in or something to stiffen it up. Mm, okay, so or it can just sink over time. Yeah, it can shift just because the glue is you know drying and things yeah. move. Yeah, right. so that would be that would be my the the thing that I would look at is if you checked it when it's clamped, if it moves, it's and if it's that that bad, you had to disassemble and reglue it. Man, that's that's rough um, for it to move that much while it's in clamps. Like, did you? I have seen issues of people over clamping stuff and oh yeah, causing yeah. them to no longer be flat. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the thing that I ran into is it. It's just such a big item that it's it, it's just it's wobbly until you put a back panel and stiffen it up and all that <laughs> stuff. But as far as my my assembly table, I built a torsion box top, and I didn't even measure it when I put the top skin on there. I don't care. It is what it is. It's flat enough. <laughs> I didn't even measure it. So who knows yeah. how far it is out of square right now or not flat? But um, you know, I've worked on fold out tables, card tables, and all kinds of stuff before, and and. And, you know, not had too many issues, but guys, right. You know, making sure that you don't have a twist in, in there is going to be the big issue on non flat surfaces like that. Uh, But my, my bet is that, you know, I don't know. We we always say this with every single question we answer, we don't have enough information, but I run into issues with the big pieces that it's just, they're, Mm -hmm. they're always going to move without support of the back and stuff like Mm -hmm. that in it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you let's, if you glue up a cabinet like this, let's say it's a dresser and it was too big to put on your assembly table, yeah. You, and you need to glue it up on the floor. Do you glue it up on its back, or do you glue it up standing upright on its feet? On its back. On its back. And then I use it. I lay. I well, I lay it on like pipe clamps or whatever. I use that. I don't lay it directly on the the concrete. Yeah, yeah. I laid yeah. on the clamps and that gives me a better feeling of, hey, this is flat. Now I just need to make sure that the clamps aren't going to twist the piece. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll shim it or whatever, but that's how I do it. Yeah, I run into this problem all the time. That some of, not, not as much anymore, but uh, where the, the, the pieces are just too big for my assembly table. Yeah. And what I was doing was, let's say I had a dresser. You know, I put the bottom rails on the dresser and hang the feet off the side. My assembly table is about 67, 68 inches long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 30 inches wide, maybe like 32 inches wide. Sometimes things are just too big. I'll put them up there. I'll clamp them up while they're up there, but I'll do it while it's upright. The 
So the okay. legs, so the feet are hanging over the ends. Mm-hmm. The only problem is, as a, a couple times, I've built things on top of that, and I cannot get them off. By myself. Yeah, because they're too big. They're too big and too heavy, and I'm yeah. too old and too frail. Yeah. So I've had to get my wife a couple times, bless her heart. Yeah. But mostly I have to wait for, you know, my son or something like that to, to give me a hand or my, my son-in-law to come give me a hand and get mm-hmm. it off. So that's happened a couple times where I I just couldn't get the damn thing off. And I've yeah. a, a couple times I've tried and I've slid it off and, you know, just about killed myself. And, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. But mm. yeah. So reading Fred's a little bit more, I, I'm guessing that you it was probably out of square and you clamped it into square with pressure and that's mm-hmm. not going to keep it square when you let the clamps off. So that's good to do a dry run and make sure that you don't have to put too much pressure on it to get it square. So mm-hmm. then you got something off. Yeah. Another good tip too, is I have, I have one spot on my garage floor and it's I should use flat. it. Yeah, it's flat. Yeah. Unfortunately I don't use it as much as I should because it's, if I put it, that one flat spot is, my table saw covers half of it. Mm. So I'm just too damn lazy to move all the equipment out of the way to get to that one flat Mm. spot on my floor. I've done what you've done. So you allow a certain portion of the legs on say a big assembly to hang over the uh, assembly table, correct? Yep. Or I'll, or I'll, or I'll do it upside Mm. down. Yeah. 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 Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. I've done both. But getting clamps up there, you know, like six, seven feet, you know, seven foot long pipe clamp, seven feet off the ground, eight feet off the ground is can be difficult at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, right. I thought I thought that was a good question. There's a, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of stuff there. So, who's got the next question? That'd Shall be me. Mm-hmm. All right. So this one's from Tyler. I found some really nice walnut burl veneer that I would like to use on tambour doors. I plan on veneering these onto solid walnut in hopes of both accounting for wood movement in the veneer and not seeing an ugly MDF substrate when opening the doors. Am I going overboard by using solid walnut for the backing substrate? Or is there a way to hide the edges of the MDF as to not see them when moving the doors? And would using MDF as a substrate cause issues with the veneer moving over time? I plan on using the heat lock veneer glue to adhere the veneers to the substrate, Tyler. I would use, I was sitting there looking at this and, you know, typically you route a profiling and I've not done these, these doors before, but I'm familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to route a profile in them. I'm not even sure how you could hide the MDF edges on that um, with something like a, some sort of edge banding. Um, but are you going overboard by using, real solid walnut absolutely not and these pieces are so narrow anyway that you don't have to worry about wood movement on veneer on something like that as a matter of fact i would it's going to hold up better with uh the movement over time than mdf i personally and again i've not made these i can't tell you i don't have any hard uh, cold hard facts here for this but i would recommend using solid wood on something like this um just because it's going to hold up better on doors that are going to be moving like this um, but yeah, I'm not guy. You've made these doors before. Did you use solid wood for yours? Yep. Any, uh, 
how would you even hide these the edges on something when you write, have to write a profile like that? Is that even possible? I don't think so. Okay, not yeah. on that small a piece and that the uh, that many of them. Yeah, unless he's doing a different type of. It's not a, a basic uh, profile, but from everything that I've looked at when I looked at these doors in the past, they look uh, yeah, I, I would just I would recommend only using solid wood for something like this where you have friction and movement and, mm-hmm. and all that jazz. So now, I've seen folks use uh, an accent veneer for the front of the Tom, Bo- which Tom is what Bo- he's wood. doing. Yeah. With the walnut burl. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm not reading it in front of me. I just, uh, yeah, I would do solid wood. Well, that was an easy one. I think it's going to well, conceal everything. Easy. Yeah. I, I, one of the, one of the, Something like this, you know, make sure you use uh, a backer veneer on mm-hmm. a Tyler. I haven't used the heat lock veneer glue, so I can't say that that's a good choice. I have. It'll hold it, up. It may be a good choice. What I would do, and I, I did do a video on this too, which is how to apply a veneer, veneer without a vacuum bag using clamps and melamine call and melamine mm-hmm. and calls on it. Mm-hmm. That's if I didn't have a vacuum bag, that's what I would do. And I would use solid wood and I put the thing on there and everybody who's listening to this podcast for a while knows I'm a really big fan of the, of the urea resin glue. Mm-hmm. That's, really what I would, that's what I yeah. would put on it. Cause it's hard. And it, those, when you cut, cut those timbers and you know, the, the, the door into little timbre strips, it'll help retain the shape. Mm. So I think anyways, it's like putting epoxy over the top of them. So when you, it, it's, it's little strips that you cut and then you connect them back together with some form of cloth on the back, right? Yeah. So you, I've done it twice. I did it the first time I actually did it, put it on video. It's another video on my YouTube page. Go visit my YouTube page, guys. Subscribe. Um, <laughs> But uh, I show how to do it on there. You have to create a jig and use canvas and you put Mm -hmm. it on there. It's actually pretty easy. Um, But it's one of those things you have to do a lot of prep work to make sure everything is is right. Because if you glue those things together, (laughs) you're screwed. How did you, uh, yeah, I was just about to ask that. Now, I know I've watched your video before, but how did you prevent them from uh, sticking together? Well, you you build a, a rack for it. Mm-hmm. That has, and the, the 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 strips go into the rack, and it, there's a like a rabbit piece of wood that covers them up so they can't move up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you put them right next to each other, and then you use wedges to drive them against each other. Mm-hmm. And so that strip, way, the glue doesn't seep through. Okay, yeah, yeah that's what you hope. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let me ask you then about this backer veneer. Since these are tiny, narrow strips, and mm-hmm. he's going to be gluing something to the back anyway, mm-hmm. can't can he just skip the backer veneer? Yeah, if you're putting the canvas part on the back. So Still, you, I mean, they're, they're tambour doors. I don't know how big they are. A, I don't know how big they are. That's not a piece of information I don't have. But if you're putting veneer on the front, it's not that hard to put it on the back. Doesn't make yeah. much sense not to put it on the back too. Yeah, I see. Yeah. It's pretty easy. Yeah. 
If you're going to do one, do the other. I guess is my point. It's good assurance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how well, so you, you're not capturing it like you would a drawer front. Right, right. There's nothing keeping it from, from moving. moving so. yeah. Point, good point. All right. I think I've got the next one. Yep. All right. All right. So this one is from Mark. So I've heard of some folks making the decision to, to not have a table saw in their shop. Two main reasons cited being safety. If it's not a saw stop, you will die. <laughs> Thanks, Guy, for, for that. And also space. Personally, I understand their position, but don't think I could do it. I simply like my saw too much. Would any of you consider it? Additionally, what operations does a table saw perform that you could not duplicate or on with another machine? I realize this is a th- more of a thought of a thought experiment than a question, but I thought I'd throw it out there. Thanks for the great show, Mark. Way, 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 way back when, when I had a contractor saw, and I saw that I wanted to do like a lot more like cabinet type work, uh, and I bought a Festool track saw. I I thought about just doing the whole MFT setup and uh, and the square and the cut a line thing and and all that and with the stop locks and whatnot and ultimately i i decided against it because i wanted at the time my shop to look a little bit more like a traditional shop to have that you know table saw sort of in the centerpiece but in doing so i became so used to the table saw operations that i don't think there when it comes to to cabinet work when it comes to breaking down plywood i use a track saw all the time and I don't really use the table saw as much, but I, I really just can't imagine not having it primarily because I do a lot of a lot more like furniture type uh, cuts, tenonings, tenons, um, uh, dados, which again, you can do with a track saw, but uh, you, you'd have to move that fence a whole bunch of times or move the piece underneath the fence a whole bunch of times in order to do but, that. But so. I guess the, the, the question is, again, I'm going to interrupt you again. Yeah. That's me, <laughs> the great interrupter. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, what operations does the table saw perform that you could not duplicate with another machine? Everything you just mentioned, and this is why I stopped you, because everything you just mentioned mm-hmm. could be done on other machines. Tenoning? A tenon yep. jig? On what? Bandsaw. Yeah. But with additional I guess, cleanup. But still it can be it can be it can be done. Right. Well, yeah. I guess you yeah. can, it can't be done with a track saw though, for sure. No. But he's not uh, I guess I guess the question is whether or not you'd get rid of the table saw. I mean it's a convenience thing for me. No, no way would I do that. Could you do anything with any other Guy, tool? Absolutely. I agree with you that it can be done on another machine, but I prefer to do it on the table saw. Sure. Yeah. So, so do I. I, I'm just, I get it. Like, and yeah. I totally agree. It's just my comfort is to do that work with the table saw. But is there any operation you can think of that the table saw performs that you could not do on another machine? Mm. Well, uh, no. Not that I can think of. On another on another machine, yes. There's there are a lot of operations. I'd say almost all of them that are done on the table saw that can be done on another machine. 
I'm just trying to think if there's anything out there that you couldn't do hmm. unless you had a table saw. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's a blade that cuts. Um, I mean, you got dado stack, regular blade, and a fence. I mean, I'm not, nothing comes to mind that you can do on there that you can't do with a router and a bandsaw and a track saw. But the convenience of it. Right. Yeah. Oh, 100%. That's right. The creature comforts of it. Yeah. Know. Now, his yeah, second question is would any of you consider it? Absolutely no. not. No, <laughs> no way. It's it's too integrated into my shop. It's 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 part of my assembly table. It's I have way too many jigs that I've grown accustomed to using that I've built for it. That I, yeah, I, it's just not going to happen. And then you got hand tools if we want to get really into it. Yeah, yeah. What I what I consider not really mainly because. I'm just too accustomed to having it. Yep. And it's not that I couldn't live without it. I don't want to live without it. it not only does the, the joinery and the ripping and the cross cutting and things like that, but it's also another workspace for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, we were talking about a flat glue up spot before. The table great. saws are a really good place to do that kind of stuff. Put a piece of, you know, uh, hardboard over the top of it and glue right on top of that. That's pretty darn flat. Tell you what, it's flat anyways. It's great also as a work surface for like a Festool Domino, if you've got small parts or whatnot to reference off of. Great for storing junk and scrap on the, (laughs) (laughs) on the outfeed side. Yeah. So I, I I guess, I guess the answer Mark is, is really, I, I, I think it's, what we and Sean, you know, basically said it's comfort. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's your comfort food. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's my banky <laughs> because table yeah. saws haven't always been around and they've been able yeah. to, to do everything we're doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. But I'm going to think about that. Maybe yeah. I'll have an answer the next, the next show. Yeah. Listen to the something I can't mm-hmm. think of doing on the bandsaw and all you listeners out there, in Radio Land, if you think of something, please let us know. Yeah. That'd really be, that's a really good question. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That brings us to our sponsor for today. There's no getting around it. Sanding is a dusty proposition. Maybe you've tried mesh sandpaper to give your vacuum system a fighting chance at sucking up the, that dusk. Sure, it works all right, but the sandpaper wears out way too fast. But you don't have to compromise sandpaper life for proper dust management anymore, thanks to 3M's Extract Net Sanding Discs. I personally use these on the Edge Profile uh, recently, and I, I used 3M's soft interface pad. It was actually the first time I've ever used it, and it's something that I bought outside of testing out the 3M Extract uh, Net Sanding Discs. But I used it with the uh, soft interface pad and I uh, did the edge profile on this table and it came out really, really well. And I was able to use one piece of sandpaper to do all the uh, edge profile sanding on this table. So it it definitely does last. So don't compromise on sandpaper. Go to geo.3m.com forward slash extract to today. That's X. T-R-A-C-T-2. You'll find the 3M Extract Cubitron 2 NetDisc 710W, the most advanced sanding disc ever made, and it's, and its little brother, 
the 3M Extract Disc 310W. 3M Extract, sand less, make more. All right, Guy, we're coming back to you on the second question. All right. This question comes to us from John, and it says, I recently opened up a can of water-based poly that I've had in storage for a while. The top three quarters of the can was great, but when I got to the bottom, a quarter of it had turned into a thick gel-like substance. Mm. I did some quick Googling and found a forum post where somebody suggested creating CO2 gas by mixing baking soda and vinegar in a jar and pouring that gas into a partially used can of poly. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you ever made one of those volcanoes when you're in third grade where you, you poured baking soda and vinegar in it and it just erupts. Yeah. The CO2, and it, but it will create CO2 gas. The CO2 will displace the oxygen in the can and then you can seal it up. This preserves leftover poly as reaction with oxygen is what hardens it. Obviously, it's too late for my can, but have you all ever heard of this? If so, have you ever done it? Thought it was pretty interesting regardless. Thanks, John. So, no, I've never heard of it, and no, I've never tried it. Mm-hmm. If that, if your water-based poly was, let's say, flat or satin, that could be that stuff in the bottom is just because you didn't mix it well enough. Mm. Cause that's where all the, the stuff is that creates that sheen, mm. the, okay. the, the flat or the satin sheen. I really question if that, if this thing would work. I don't know how you would capture this, the carbon dioxide <sighs> By using baking soda and vinegar, I understand that it will make that. I would just, I just don't understand the mechanics of it. I think it would be a lot easier physically how it works. I, I there 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 are two products I'm going to suggest using, mm-hmm. and one of them is exactly what this thing is you're talking about. It's called Bloxygen mm-hmm. with a B, and that that's exactly what it's designed to do. It fills up the excess space. It doesn't go underneath, but it, but it'll displace all the oxygen mm-hmm. inside your can and won't let it harden if it's in there for a long time. Right. I, I, there's another thing you can do, but I'll, I'll turn it over to, you know, Hui here. Stop loss bags? Well, end of this sure. question. <laughs> Thanks, guy. Thanks, guy. I'll, I'll, I'll pay you later. Uh, Explain what a stop-loss bag is. Uh, so a stop-loss bag is a bag that you can put your paint, poly, your finishes in uh, after you open the can so so that it can uh, you can eliminate all the air inside of that bag because the air is going to be at the top of the bag. And so then you're just going to squeeze out that air, uh, zip up the top, and uh, you can open it up again later, and it's supposed to last a lot longer. Did I get that right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what it is. So that's another option. I would not do the baking soda thing. I, I don't even know. I don't maybe, even know. How you maybe there's it. a way to do it, but I just don't. I don't see the mechanics of it. Yeah, 
I, I don't see the mechanics. I think it'd be a lot easier just to buy a bottle of oxygen or a couple of stop loss bags. Yeah. So my um, answer to this, obviously, since I got option number three, it's to throw it out and buy a new can. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Or use I, I do. I do have another option. Oh yeah. Use it up before it goes bad. Dang there it. There you go. I was going to say that, but I'll, I'll let you have it. That's yeah. Don't buy so stinking much. Smart out the answer. Yeah. And the, the, the thing with uh, that stuff is it's there's really no way to reconstitute it or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, water-based poly doesn't last in the can as long as something like Armor Seal does. I've opened up a can of Armor Seal or a can of just regular, you know, uh, oil-based poly. Yeah. That I hadn't used in several years. Yeah. And it still was fine. Yeah. I had no issues with it. Now I've I've tried that with water based poly, and after six months, it's you might as well throw it out. Yeah. Now there are probably people listening that are shouting other products at us. Yeah. It's hard to remember all these things when you're recording. Keep that yeah, in mind. In. <laughs> yeah. Send them in. Send them in. Now uh, I have a can, an eight year old can of General Finishes water based pre cat lacquer that I never opened. And I was actually thinking about using it, but I chose not to because, ah, man, take I, one for the team. I, I should open it and just see how it is. But uh, yeah. yeah, at least I mean, you could open it up and try it on a test piece of wood and if, see if it, you know, yeah. if, it, if it if it worked. Yeah, eight years. You'll know pretty darn quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no way I could not open that and just toss it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't tossed it. It's, I still have it. <laughs> Record that for Instagram, and uh, and tag that some special tag. We got to see what it looks like. <laughs> I'm curious. I gotta I gotta do it now. Do it. Yeah. But uh, I hope that helps, John. We gave you two solid answers, anyways. And again, anybody has any product, more products that you think we should be talking about? Please let us know. We'll maybe we'll bring it up on the next next time we record so all right i'm gonna kick it over to sean that's right this one's Mm -hmm. a pretty good question it's a really good question um so it's gonna be a long one this is from joshua long as in answer um hello sean guy and we you guys always make one of the best podcasts and i love hearing your different outlooks on topics my question today is about design and encouraging creativity Obviously, this will be different depending on whether or not there's a client involved, but how do you decide on a direction for the design of the piece of furniture? How do you begin with the design or the materials? Have you ever looked at a piece or stack of lumber and designed your project to highlight something special about it? On the other hand, have you ever designed a piece and then had to find the perfect piece of lumber to make it with? Thank you. Joshua from the Black Dog Studios, Finding Beauty in Former Trees. There's several questions in this question. So I'm going to answer one of the questions in this pile of questions. And then if guy, if we want to touch on those, cool. Um, Cause my answer is probably going to be pretty long. I sat there and thought about this for a little bit. Um, now, obviously Josh, you mentioned that, you know, if a client is involved, commission pieces are kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of limited on direction mm-hmm. of design for the most part, but I'm just talking about if I'm building a piece for myself, I normally start out by figuring out the piece that I want to build. Like I need to build a coffee area, a kitchen table pretty soon. So I'm going to be designing that. 
Um, and, you know, personally, I'm not that I'm not creative enough to just start sketching a piece without first finding inspirational pieces like in pictures and stuff. Yeah. I wish I had that talent that some folks have, but I just I, I'm not that creative. And it could be that I don't because I don't do this often enough, but I need to look and see what's out there. Um, and typically when I see a piece, it's going to, it catches my eye. And then I need to determine when I'm looking at that, I'm like, what about this piece caught my eye? Is it the way that the, mm-hmm. the leg is shaped? Is it the way the apron is designed or something like a profile on the tabletop? You know, I like to get a, some inspiration before I sit down and, and start using SketchUp. And when I use SketchUp, I like to do my first iteration. And when I'm done and I feel happy with it, I force myself to make a copy of that file and then make another version and then do that two or three times. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm making these two different or three different versions of the, uh, of the, of the, the piece that I'm building, I, it really starts to, uh, to settle in on, on the, what I'm happy with, because if I redesign something a version two or three, that I'll change a leg design or something like that, I start to feel, you know, it, 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 it makes it clear if, if I'm going the wrong direction with something and it just, makes me happy with whatever version I pick that I know that I'm not settling on something because I only have so much room in my house and I've, <laughs> I've given so much furniture away <laughs> to family and stuff that I don't have a lot of opportunity to take a second or a third stab at it. And I don't sell furniture, uh, quite, you know, maybe, maybe one time every couple of years. So, um, and that, that's, I make sure that what I do, what I go out there and build in my mind at the time is going to be the best looking piece for my house. Um, and as far as the materials are concerned, I typically have an idea on, I get the design done first and then I just pick the, the species to go with, to, with, in other words, the species aren't as important as the design. I'll get the design done first and then go back and determine the species that I want to go with mm-hmm. uh, on the project. Um, but so that's my process for designing a piece for myself. Um, and I know there's a lot of other questions in here, but Hui, do you want to tackle maybe one of the other questions on your, your thought process on it? So I've had the pleasure and sometimes even the displeasure to involve clients sometimes in the design of a furniture piece, especially considering that I've done a few commission pieces right now, have done a few commission pieces and have them under my belt. There there have been a couple that I did not particularly enjoy or really like the design, but enjoyed how I was designing the piece to go together. Uh, and if that makes sense, but just sort of designing in my head as to how everything's going to join together and how is this going to attach to that. Um, so in that sense, that is more so just understanding basic construction of, of cabinets, uh, tables, chairs, and things like that. That really doesn't change all that much. But with respect to building pieces for myself, very much like you, Sean, I'm just not creative enough to come up with uh, unique enough designs on my own. It's really looking at other pieces and other other makers and coming up with inspiration and certain things that I like or elements, motifs, things that I like about what that piece really uh, drew me to it, right? J- just like you, Sean. And so then I tried to incorporate those things into maybe a piece that I want to make. Now, of course, the space also dictates greatly as to what what it is that I'm building, uh, but that's more on a dimensional scale. So definitely need to consider that. But but yeah, I'm just I'm just not really. I wish I was more creative to to make maybe something that was more uniquely me or you know my 
design whatever, right? My style, my my take on things. Uh, I'm, I'm just really not that creative. Um, Guy, I know you've done, you've had your own furniture business and then you've also uh, worked with the cabinet maker or the furniture makers that you guys, that you're with right now. How do you deal with clients? Do you... Uh, well, where, where I work right now, I don't deal with clients. Right. I'm given a piece of paper that says, build this. And it's not, there's the enjoyment from building it that is just not a consideration at all. Mm. Um, I do enjoy building it. Yeah. You know, but it's not like I can make design changes based on my own likes and dislikes. Right. The customer's expectations have been set by somebody else. Mm -hmm. I've never talked to the customer. I don't know what their mindset is. I just build what I'm told to build. But, you know, getting to the, the, the question from Joshua is, you know, how do you begin? Did you begin with the design or the materials? Yes. Mm. Both. Have you ever looked at a piece or stack of lumber, designed your project to highlight something special about it? Yes. That's all part of the design process, especially if you're building something for yourself. Mm. Now, if you're building something for yourself, your family, whatever, it's going to live in your house. You've got such an opportunity to make whatever the hell you want to. You mm-hmm. can make it out of whatever materials you want to. And all, the only person you have to make happy is yourself well, and your wife, probably. <laughs> so, you know, take inspiration, like Sean Hui said, take some inspiration from other builders, other makers, other, you know, furniture makers and say, you know, I like, you know, I like this part. I like this part. I like this part. I like the overall look of this. And you can incorporate as much or little of those other designs as you want in yours. Then you have to remember, it's just about everything has been done. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of trying to make some outlandish, never before made piece of furniture, just look at the function, what its function is going to be. And then make it to your liking. Make it out of a material that you like. If you have a special board, you say, I want to incorporate the the, the squirrel of this grain right here on this piece. Mm -hmm. Do it. Because it's your piece. You can do whatever you want to. Yeah. You're not taking orders from anybody else. That's right. So um, I I see that. I don't don't get that opportunity that often. Mm -hmm. But when I do, I usually have fun with it. Yeah. I, I get a lot more it's much more satisfying to build yeah. that that piece of furniture when I can just do whatever the hell I want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's completely in your control from start to finish. Yep. And your and your vision. Yep. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm and I'm gonna talk about this at at the end what we got going on, but I am doing my next piece is a commission piece and I got the lumber for it. And you know, the, uh, the guy that I'm building it for, I built a couple other items for, but he's going to be coming out when the lumber is, you know, acclimated to my shop and he's going to, you know, he, he cares enough to about pick up, pick the, the parts of the lumber that he wants to keep for the certain parts of it. And, you know, he respects that part of it. So that's going to be fun to do with him. Yeah. Bless your heart. <laughs> well, thankfully it's just a, a bench. There's, yeah. There's no way I would let that happen. Nope. <laughs> well, I mean, 
it's a it's a live edge top, so that explains why. Oh I'm yeah, that's, the, that's the end that I that's don't different. cut off. <laughs> that's that's different. That's different. Yeah, that's different. But uh, cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot. There's a, we could talk about this for a solid hour if yeah. we wanted to. Maybe we should do an episode on just designing a piece in our process, and you know, like each of us take a turn, like. Uh, okay, let's talk about the base. Let's like choose a piece, and then we dissect building it and designing it. But maybe in the future, maybe if we're still around in the future, twenty thirty. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I've got the last question, and this is a little bit of a long one, but again, we always ask for more detail, right? So this is from Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> he says, "Hey all, thanks for the great show. I notice I have been getting diminished diminished quality cuts from my full curve." glue line rip blade on my table saw that is minor saw blade marks occasional burning in addition i notice a touch of increased resistance as i begin to exit my rip cuts and the blade seems to make contact again as the board moves past the blade to address these issues i have adjusted the blade to about two thou to the left i can cut on the right of my blade generally and adjusted my my fence I have an older, beat-up Powermatic 64B contractor saw. I've noticed that the plastic faces on the fence are a bit wavy. Again, a few thousands. Maybe about 10 to 15 thou variation throughout, but I have the extreme front and back of the fence perfectly aligned. My rips aren't perfect when I cut from the left of the blade, but the resistance feels more consistent and predictable. I am currently transitioning from hobbyist to full-time and would like to solve this annoyance as it occasionally affects my panel glue-ups and cutting board season is nearly upon us. Yes, it is. I think for now, I will clamp on an MDF fence to see if that can help suck out the issue. If it is a fence face or alignment issue, do you think I should maybe invest in a better fence, or should I consider replacing my glorious Powermatic saw with the saw-stop cabinet saw that exclusively in spite of guy (laughs) i did (laughs) there you go i do have 220 in the shop now powering my heater and big grizzly bandsaw with amperage remaining for a three horsepower cabinet it would also be great to have a table saw with dust collection my guess is that his paramatic 64 does not have dust collection on it sorry for the length y'all but you're always asking for more details and a replacement cabinet saw wouldn't have to be a saw stop but I think it may be good insurance when I can afford to hire an employee. That said, this would be an upgrade maybe three to eight months down the road uh, if I'm making consistent money longer, if I can get the Powermatic figured out. I, I do a range of things from small CNC projects, shelves, cutting boards, and plan to move on into selling furniture. Uh, so Dylan, I think that's not you know a bad idea to put some type of auxiliary fence on that because if you've got it lined up and you've got a decent working uh, saw, I, I would just milk it for all it's worth until you can afford for that saw stop cabinet saw <laughs> uh, or Powermatic, or nicer Powermatic. But, but you do make a good point. It does help with insurance if you do plan on uh, having an employee. Uh, I think, Guy, you can speak to that with, uh, yep. with your shop. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But. I would try to milk it for all it's worth and put on an MDF fence. You can actually get a replacement. Uh, is it UHMW or what is it called? Uh, yeah, UHMW. UHMW, yeah. Uh, because I did replace the UHMW 
on my grizzly saw because it was all marred up from uh, the cabinet saw that owned it previously. So you can do that, and that might help a little bit um, with the with the issue that you're having with variations in the fence. What do you think, guy? Do you think he should uh, just get rid of it and get something in between, or 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 salvage what he has, or you know, does no, the MDF I, fence help at all? Do you think? I th- I think myself. Mm-hmm. I think he's seeing a problem that I wouldn't see. Minor saw mm. blade marks and occasional burning happens. Yes. With the best of tune saws and a brand new sharp blade. Mm. And it just it just happens sometimes. So as you're you know, a good example is you're you're cutting the board, you know, let's say you got a piece of maple. Yeah. Hard maple. Yeah. And you're gonna get burning. You're ripping it mm-hmm. and it starts burning. I say, hey, everything is perfect. Why is it burning? Well, because that that board, no matter what you do, mm-hmm. is going to twist and turn into a potato chip as you're cutting it. It's going right. to release all right. that tension. tension. So I don't know if I'd be too worried about occasional burning and minor saw blade marks, mm. I guess is my point. Right. Um, the thing he's talking about, the touch of re- increased resistance as I begin to exit my rip cuts, I would look at, you know, as a model, if it's an older model 64, it probably does not have a riving knife on it. Ah, yeah. Um, Good point. Maybe get uh, the micro jig thing. Yeah, you can get something like that. Um, you know, like I said, I, I, I don't think it's that much of an issue. The 10 to 15 thou that the, the, the fence is out. Yeah, that's going to affect, that's going to affect Probably more than anything else, yeah. Because the, the the board's going to wave in and out at the, you know that little bit, and that's going to cause it to do it. So, I I I'm with Hui. I'd replace the the faces on the fence and you know live with the occasional saw mark. Right. Right. Yeah, I I agree. Um, one thing I would probably would check also if I were you just to check just to know for sure is if you got any any run out on your arbor. Um, yeah. And, and see, I, I, to be honest with you, I have struggled with the same problem and it only happened after I triggered the uh, cartridge on my saw stops and I'm, mm. I'm still trying to figure it out to make it, but I'm probably going above and beyond trying to make it perfect, which is, you know, unlike me being lazy. Um, but I would check that, uh, like I was saying, and then, uh, you know, try the, the easiest things first, like we were saying, replace the fence. If that works, then you know what the issue is and you know how to fix it. And that's yeah. going to be the easiest thing to check. Um, sure. if those two don't work and you've got everything aligned, I don't know. Uh, that's a pickle, but I, I, I would save up. I would still use it and I'd save up. And if that, if the occasional issue does arrive, I imagine you have a joiner. It sounds like you have one Run the board through the door. So let me ask you, are you all able to get cuts off of your table saw that are edge joint, like glue ready panels, glue up, whatever. Depends. Yes, that's that's a good answer, Hui. It depends. Yeah. So then let's maybe touch on that for Dylan. Maybe it's okay to not to not get perfect cuts every time off of the table saw, or it's not to be expected. Yeah, I mean, I have a. a it's not super duper expensive, but I've got a very nice Freud, Freud, ripping blade. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I paid like eight or ninety dollars. I don't remember what the model number is on it, so excuse me. But it's a twenty-four tooth rip blade. 
yep. supposed to be a glue line cut. And it, it does a very good job most of the time. Right. And the only variable that's in with all that is the actual piece of wood I'm cutting. Sometimes yeah. it just... Don't want to play ball. Yeah. It, 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 it's got tension built up in it. You cut it and it goes... I've used this very similar glue line rip blade and burned uh, a couple of pieces. And I just went to the joiner afterwards and yeah. just cleaned it up. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. It's good thing good that you pointed that out though, guy. It happens sometimes. Yeah. What do you so what do you think, Sean? Yeah, that's I've already covered that. What I think is not much <laughs> in addition to what you all said. <laughs> Check for arbor run out, replace the fence, or put a sacrificial oh, yeah, fence. Yeah, you did say arbor run out. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Good one. If you all would one. listen to me, geez. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that does it for the questions. Let's talk about what we've got going on in our own shops. And Sean, since you've already Uh touched base on some of the things that you're doing in your shop, why don't you go first? All right. So I've got a commission piece coming. I've been waiting on this ash to get out of the kiln for the past six to eight weeks. Buddy that I made some stuff for in the past, a couple end tables and whatnot, wanted me to make a bench for his uh, wife to, to store the plants on. Uh, plant bench, I guess. Um, they wanted it stained. They wanted live edge for the top. Mm. Uh, so I've got, went and picked up the live edge ash um, and some eight quarter, four quarter ash at the sawmill. Uh, I've never used ash before. So that's be the first time I'm going to stain it. Um, uh, guy and we both said it stains well. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, really super clean white ash. It's just spotless. Perfect. Um, nice. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm, it, I should be starting the design of it um, in the next, probably this weekend. So this is an instance where I got the lumber before designing it because I'm kind of limited on on stuff like that for a live edge top in my area, unless you go walnut or cherry or something. But uh, so I got that going. While I was there, the uh, the sawmill the owner was talking to me and said, "In that pile of cherry, there's a bunch of." quilted cherry in there so I, was, I spent probably an hour digging through a pile <laughs> to find this quilted cherry and it just i ran out of daylight but i got probably four or five beautiful beautiful cherry boards can i have uh, them no not this time maybe next time <laughs> but really beautiful beautiful cherry boards that i'm going to be uh using for something um but yes yeah, so i'm i'm stocked up on lumber actually my lumber rack is, is full and overflowing with this ash and all the other stuff that I have. Uh, just going to be starting a design and sketch up this weekend. Uh, shouldn't take me too long. It's just a bench. So that's, uh, nice. that's what I got going on. Cool. All right, guy, what do you got going on, man? In my shop? Mm-hmm. Um, actually we're, we're, we're painting some doors for the house in, in my shop, which basically means my wife is doing all the work. <laughs> <laughs> but it is yeah. happening in, in my shop. It is happening. It is happening. Yes. So what's going on at work? Um, I, I don't know. I've been, I, like I said the last couple of I have not been in the shop mm-hmm. at work. So I've been sitting behind a desk Okay. Well. for a while now. Um, we're basically what we're doing is we, I've mentioned it before where we'll get a drawing and say, build this. And I mean, it's, it's literally a hand drawn 
picture of something that somebody took a picture of. Mm. I mean, it's, it's that bad. Mm. So we're starting to do a, a catalog of CAD drawings. Ah. And a lot of it is for our metal fab department. Mm-hmm. So I've been making these sheets mm. for all the different types of bases we make and the different variations of them. And I just finished yesterday morning with all the last of them. With the last of them. Yeah, it's like a hundred different things. Wow. So I finished with that and now I'm building some stuff virtually for our, our wood department. Okay. Nice. So that's what I'm doing. I'm building stuff on the computer, but not nice. in real life. I'd rather be out in the shop in real life. So, mm-hmm. so Hui, what do you have going on in your shop? Well, in in the shop, before I talk about what I had going in the shop, the reason why I was out last week was because I was on vacation with my family. We just got back from from Disney. That was, I don't know if you can call that a vacation. Um, <laughs> why? It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of work for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, got back and this baluster table that I'm working on. Uh, it's sort of like a trestle table, but rather than having that center post, it's two balusters. Uh, it's pretty kind of a neat design. It's really not my style, but it's what the client wants. And she's happy with the design that I presented her with the drawing that I gave her uh, based on her preferences. And so that is all sanded down, uh, ready to go. That's where I was doing the uh shaped profile sort of thumbnail edge for the tabletop and it's ready for uh, stain so i will hopefully do that uh, this possibly tomorrow so this is a wednesday possibly thursday and get it out of what you're not working tomorrow well at in the evening (laughs) start on staining it uh, in the evenings and then um, put a couple coats of water-based poly over top of it uh, this weekend Hopefully get it done this weekend. Nice. So that's what I got going on in the shop. Uh, I think that wraps up this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. That's you guys. So if you have woodworking questions, please send it through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And please make sure to include your name. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are my website. Guy, where can we find you? Guyswoodshop.com or guyswoodshop on Instagram. And Sean? At Simple Cove on Instagram and simplecove.com. All right. Great. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple. See ya. All right. See See ya. ya.